Hi, welcome to You Can Read the Bible's lesson on 1 Kings chapters 18 and 2 Kings chapters 18 through 24, Heroes, Virtue Signaling, and Power. Our memory verse is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 What would a hero do? In quite a few federal agencies these days, there is a big recruitment and retention problem. Fewer and fewer Americans want to work for Uncle Sam. For technical fields especially, even agencies that are vital to our national defense are una unable to marshal an adequate workforce. I've seen this firsthand. While there has always been a pay disparity between public service and the private sector, there have historically been enough people willing to accept lower wages in return for serving the common good, while this trend apparently began to accelerate during the Obama administration, uh, under the Trump administration, those days of relying on public service as an employment pull are definitely at an end. So whether really under Obama or Trump, who wants to work for an establishment that many perceive to be immoral or even illegitimate? In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have this same question and this same scenario. So let's Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 right now, and I'll read from the ESV. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord? His prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here? And... He will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. That's through verse 16. Now I want to divide this chapter into two parts. First is the first 16 verses, and then verses 17 through 40. Starting in verse 17 then. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, 
and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So, two very, very interesting stories here in 1 Kings chapter 18. These two stories are juxtaposed, and they're really quite striking in their difference. In the first story, you know, Elijah's called to meet Ahab, this evil King Ahab with his wife, evil Queen Jezebel, and along the way he meets Obadiah. Now, the second story from verses 17 through 40, is probably the most famous story about Elijah in the Bible. And, and really, who doesn't love Elijah here? He's like a spiritual superhero. 
he raises the dead earlier and he stops the rain and and now this the sacrifice scene is just it's just unbelievable he's like a super spiritual superhero he raises the dead and uh does all this you know miraculous stuff that ordinary people we just sorry we just don't do that stuff so in the sort of the most common way that these two stories are read has Elijah as the story's protagonist, the main character. And and then King Ahab, remember he's very evil, he's the antagonist. He's the guy that's, you know, getting in the way of Elijah and thwarting him. And then Obadiah, he's this sympathetic if, if kind of flawed agonist. He's kind of a, a side character and he's sort of uh, high, he's he sort of serves in this story to highlight the the goodness, faithfulness, righteousness of Elijah. So then Obadiah's literary purpose here is related to uh, both Elijah and Ahab. So unsurprisingly, in most sermons about the first half of this chapter, Obadiah is really portrayed as a compromising and lukewarm character. He's often given as an object lesson in who not to be and really is shown to be everything that Elijah is not. Elijah is fully committed to the Lord. In fact, King Ahab seems to be fully committed to evil. And Obadiah is sort of at best partially committed to the Lord. I remember listening to one sermon, and the preacher essentially said, if you find that you are more like Obadiah than Elijah, may God give you grace to change today. And in this way, 1 Kings 18 is usually read along the lines of uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I want to suggest here today that this is a really deeply flawed way of reading this story in Scripture, and that this moral lesson about you know, who to be like uh, that we often derive from Obadiah, it really says more about our own preoccupations than about the self-revelation of God. Remember, the protagonist of 1 Kings 18 is not Elijah, but the Lord. And 1 Kings 18 shows us that the Lord uses these characters in these narratives, whether king, prophet, or lion, and, and he reveals himself to us through them. We do not read 1 Kings 18 so that we come to admire and worship Elijah. We read 1 Kings 18 to learn about the Lord. And when we encounter the Lord in this text, let's be mindful of the ways in which we need to change to better conform to his image. So let's think about what we're bringing to 1 Kings 18 that may be in need of adjustment. And so to do that, let's ask this question, what is fundamentalism? One way that we could define that is to refer to what it has historically meant. And in that vein, fundamentalism begins with a, a, an assertion of five fundamental doctrines that define orthodox or um, correct Christianity. And these five fundamental or cardinal doctrines that define what Christianity is are, number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, two, the virgin birth of Christ, three, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, meaning that Christ uh, is the sacrifice in our place, uh, four, the bodily, you know, physical resurrection of, of Christ, and then five, the historicity of biblical miracles, meaning that, uh, that these miracles, like Elijah does in this chapter, actually happened. They, they weren't just made-up stories. So we first see fundamentalism in terms of these five points. Back in 1910, the, the Northern Presbyterians, there was a, a split 
uh, going back prior to the Civil War between the, the Northern Presbyterians and the Southern Presbyterians, and this is the Northern Presbyterians, and they came up with these five uh, fundamental doctrines of Christianity during their General Assembly in Atlantic City. And there they are, having some fun at the beach. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can all um, agree that, that these five assertions are true. I mean, each of these five points... Sorry? I, I hope that we don't argue uh, about whether each of these five points is true. I want to focus on what happened when these guys here on the beach in Atlantic City decided to make a really big deal about them. So, we agree that these are true. Um, that, that, that's not the, the issue. What the issue is, is that while these five points are a very convenient defense of Christianity against what was uh, perceived to be the primary um, uh, threat to Christianity at the time, they're really not a good definition of what Christianity is all about, right? I mean, think about what they're missing, right? What about the Trinity? What about creation, sin, restoration? What about the church? It doesn't have really anything to say about any of those things. So I would agree with each of those five doctrinal points, but I would not refer to myself as a fundamentalist. And, and one reason would be that I don't think that you can distill or reduce Christianity down into these five fundamentals. If you do that, you lose too much. So making Christianity uh, about these five fundamentals is overly reductionistic, reduces it down too much. And that reductionism is the primary problem with trying to define yourself when you're trying to define yourself in opposition to something else. So these Northern Presbyterians in 1910, they were trying hard to define themselves in opposition to modernists and theological liberals at the time. And most of those theologically liberal folks would in fact have had serious reservations about some or all of those five points. And so then those five points became a convenient way of separating Orthodox from non-Orthodox Christians. These five points became, over time, the definition of Christian Orthodoxy. They became a way to have a clear, binary, yes or no choice, and that choice had very significant and clear moral implications. In other words, those five points became the de facto working definition of Orthodox Christianity. So, do you see the problem with that move? The, the primary problem with doing this is that if you're a defender of Christian Orthodoxy, it's that you have just implicitly agreed with theological liberals and modernists that these five areas are, in fact, the most relevant parts to Christianity. You've agreed that this is the area that is so important that this defines what Christianity means. And these five points became so important that they also became the working definition of fitness or goodness for Christians. That is, these five points became the de facto moral code for Orthodox Christianity. So, for example, what do I mean by that? To the Northern Presbyterians who first gave us this list and, 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 and invented and set out this list, agreement with these five points mattered more than evidence of the fruit of the Spirit for ordination candidates. Who gets to be a minister? Well, we have to first check, do they check off each of these doctrinal points? And that matters more than if they show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit or something else. And over time, agreement with 
biblical inerrancy, right? That that we believe that what the Bible says is true actually historically really happened. That agreement with that point has become more important as a signal of Christian virtue than actually reading the Bible itself. In other words, people will care more about whether you say that the Bible is true and agree with that statement than whether or not you actually read it. I hope we can see that there's a significant problem there. So, just want to be very clear, I agree with those doctrinal points, and I think they're all true, and in fact, I think they're important. I would, however, disagree that they are that important. When you define yourself in opposition to something else, you're tacitly agreeing with your opponent about what is and is not absolutely important. The terms of the debate for fundamentalists were then along the lines that theological liberals already defined. It's sort of like the theological liberals showed up and and said, hey, I think baseball is the most important game, and I think we're the best at playing this ball game. And then the fundamentalists said, sure, we'll play baseball because I think we can beat you. And the winner gets to determine who's the better fit for Christianity. But nobody stopped to wonder, is playing baseball really the best way or even the most appropriate way of determining who has the best understanding of Christianity? Maybe these five points really aren't the most important parts of, of what Christianity is all about. So, really, in, in looking over these five fundamental points and knowing something of their history, the, the crux of the battle between the theological liberals and the fundamentalists basically revolved around a choice between submitting to the sovereignty of God or the sort of the prescience of modern science. It, it just, it's obvious, if you, if you truly believe that God is sovereign, I mean, over all of his creation, then of course, scriptures without error, Jesus had a virgin birth, and other miracles can happen. Uh, historic Orthodox faith in God's sovereignty makes these doctrinal expressions of that faith uh, just almost obvious. Of course he can part the Red Sea, you know, he's God. I mean, on, on the other hand, if you believe in a modern science that says that these miraculous things can't reasonably occur, then you'll really just, you know, turn yourself into knots trying to affirm faith in a sovereign God who can't perform miracles. A God, you know, who can do everything except those things ruled out by modern science. It's not much of a God at all, and eventually you'll tire of all this not tying, and uh, as you've seen over history, most people have just sort of dropped the faith in a sovereign God part, and by now, for most of society, God is just irrelevant. So as an exercise in feudal knot tying, theological liberalism has for a long time now been losing the patience of the people in the pew. Unfortunately, the fundamentalist defenders of historic Christian orthodoxy also lost a lot by engaging in this debate on those terms. And it's true that orthodox Christianity requires a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. While it's true that the theological uh, liberalism is largely about losing that belief, I don't think that sovereignty on its own adequately defines Christianity. Uh, I mean, sure, God as sovereign can do as he pleases, you know, but what pleases him? What displeases him? What are the consequences of that displeasure? What has he done about it? What has he promised to do about it? Why would he do that? There's just so much more to Christianity than belief in a sovereign God. But all of that non-sovereignty stuff took a back seat so that theological liberalism could be fought on its own terms, so that they could play baseball with theological liberalism. So in operating this way, by reducing the definition of Orthodox Christianity down into these five doctrinal points, 
fundamentalists de-emphasized vital facets of Christianity like love, you know, forgiveness, restoration, that are at least as important to Christianity as sovereignty. And you can really get a sense of what things are missing from the fundamentalist definition of Christianity by comparing those five fundamentals with something like the Apostles' Creed. And just think about how much fuller a sense of what Christianity is all about you get from uh, the, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, any of these historic uh, Christian creeds, just way, uh, way more rich, way more full uh, understanding of, of what Christianity is than just five points. So I don't want to belabor this point just to beat up on fundamentalists. I'm belaboring it because the process that occurred that we that I talked about the historic process that fundamentalists went through is really the same process that we repeat ourselves today with ourselves and and really with each other and a whole awful lot in other words we allow others outside of christianity to define the baseline that we operate from and often that baseline gives us a very distorted picture of ourselves god and community and all too often, the baselines that we operate from are ones that we, like the fundamentalists, inherit from people at odds with the Christian faith. And the most pervasive of these non-Christian baselines is moralism, which seeks to reduce Christianity to a mere morality. Uh, so, for example, these days, most references in our media, whether self-identified as Christian media you know, or anything else, they implicitly define Orthodox Christianity in terms of a sexual morality. They define it in terms of sex and marriage. So in these media references and, you know, in a lot of books by Christians that offer social commentary, Orthodox, um, correct, normal Christianity seems to be defined solely with reference to this sexual morality. Notice that it's not agnostics getting refused wedding cakes by Christian bakers nor is it Christian beliefs in the Trinity or the resurrection that are to blame for perceived governmental persecution of Christians. It's sexual morality. And this is, you know, this is just in the air that we breathe. It's so pervasive that if I were to go out on the street and conduct a survey and ask people, you know, what's the one word that pops into your mind when I say Christian or Christianity? I bet words like sex and marriage would be at or even at the top of the list or certainly near the top of the list. And again, for historic uh, comparison, J. Gresham Machen, who founded uh, Westminster Seminary uh, in the late 1920s and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, denomination in the early 1930s, he did these things. He established these institutions in opposition to theological liberalism and modernism. Um, he, he wrote uh, two very famous, well-received, very popular books, uh, Christianity and Liberalism, and the second, What is Faith? Now, it might seem strange, but an absolute uh, defender of Orthodox Christianity wrote a book called What is Faith? And um, you know, in, in neither of his two books does he really have anything at all to say about marriage or sex. And, and these are were not obscure uh, books. These were very popular and culturally relevant books at the time. So that leads us to this question, you know, has Orthodox Christianity changed in the past 90 years? And, and is that why uh, Meechin never broaches same-sex marriage or sex outside of marriage? 
of course we know Orthodox Christianity has not changed in the past 90 years, but our, our shared culture certainly has. You know, since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, our culture has been increasingly obsessed with sexual morality. Now, you know, let me be clear, the Bible and Orthodox Christianity certainly have plenty to say about sex, marriage, and morally good behavior. Lots. And, you know, further, we Christians, we need to affirm and defend Orthodox Christianity. I'm not, not suggesting that that's not the case. What I am suggesting is that we should not do so while swallowing our culture's faulty understanding of what Christianity actually is. To be honest, even more than its obsession with, that, with sex, uh, our culture is obsessed with morality. You know, uh, virtue signaling is our national pastime. And our society's great shared fear is that we'll be judged unvirtuous and morally bankrupt by our ever-evolving moral code. You know, armed with weapons of social media, our friends and neighbors have become a, a lurking moral police force, you know, a thought police. As a result, we share honestly you know, and openly less and less with each other while agreeing with and liking the same things more and more. You know, within this rigidly binary system, there's essentially no space left for what used to be uh, called virtue formation or, or the sanctification process. It's just sort of like there's little space left for humility, nuance, or subtlety. So, you know, within this rigidly binary system, we judge the wielders of power through this prism of moralism. Power within our culture's system of understanding is understood to be a good thing in its own right, not just a, a vector or a means or a way of doing good or evil, but good in itself. It's a thing that's widely desired and, you know, worth fighting for, and is understood to be used for advancing an agenda. So, uh, you know, do those with power, this is a common question for us in society, do those with power use their power to align everything they can with our culture's moral code? We ask this of our leaders all the time. And for those of us operating within the social media world, all of our actions are now public acts. So, you know, everything from mundane acts like eating food to life-changing decisions like what you're going to do for work is viewed as a public test of virtue. So where I work and what I ate for breakfast have become ways for me to signal or tell you about my virtue, which is my alignment with our culture's moral code. Now, I've absorbed myself this moral code so well that I know were I to tell you uh, that I would much rather eat, you know, a, an unhealthy cereal uh, from like Walmart for breakfast instead of a pure organic oatmeal and fruit uh, sort of brand name concoction. That I would, I would get a negative moral judgment on me. I'm not supposed to like that. I'm not supposed to agree with that uh, food choice. So within this rigidly binary system, there's really no space left for compromise or advancing a common good. We either have the power to align with our culture's moral code, or we are victims without power while advocating for more power. In our culture, we want those who have signaled moral purity to possess social power. And we want those who have social power, but have not signaled moral purity, to be removed from power. That's how we think about virtue and power in American culture. Now let's let's circle back and let's talk about Obadiah. This is very relevant to uh, to what we understand of him. Who was he really? So we inherit 
our culture's bias for moralism when we agree with the way they define Christianity as a morality. So I think our initial or first glance reading of Obadiah betrays our belief that Christianity is a morality. So let's consider our reaction to those first 16 uh, verses in 1 Kings where we meet Obadiah and then compare them to that second chunk of, uh, of verses from 17 to 40 where we see this very famous story of Elijah and the sacrifice. And I'm not saying this uh, self-righteously. Who in their right mind would prefer Obadiah as a character to Elijah? Not me. I mean, most, and that's why most of the sermons about Obadiah tell us that he had too little faith, that he was compromising in his faith to the Lord, just as he had compromised himself by working for wicked king Ahab. Yet, you know, if we try to read this story about Obadiah without thinking about how we should admire Elijah, we actually see that Obadiah was a stout believer in the Lord from his youth who had been hiding and supporting a hundred prophets in a cave. I mean, let's acknowledge that that if we didn't have Elijah as part of the, the story here, Obadiah, you know, he really seems like a really great uh, believer. How many of us would claim the same faith-based leadership uh, accomplishments as Obadiah? It really is our perception that Elijah is the hero that's coloring shaping our understanding of Obadiah. On his own, Obadiah sure seems like a faithful follower of the Lord, except, of course, for the matter of his being what I'll call the chief of staff to uh, evil King Ahab. He's in charge of the king's household, which is part of the reason why famous commentators on this story, like F.B. Meyer, have pointed out that Obadiah was compromised by his position in the employ of evil King Ahab. Now, there is no denying that Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The question we have is, does that make working for Ahab evil? Was he compromised? Should Obadiah have been more like Elijah, living outside of civil society in the wilderness? And more generally, can good people work for morally compromised or even evil people or organizations? Now, in our modern age, there are a whole lot of Christians who would tell other Christians that being in the employ of Ahab is not fit service for a Christian. In their moral calculus, there are only good, bad, and ugly categories for people to fit in. Don't be ugly like Obadiah, and at least have the courage of your convictions. Yet doesn't this passage from Scripture actually tell us that Obadiah did have the courage of his convictions? He was no coward, surely, right? He risked life and limb to hide and provide for a hundred prophets. And think about what that must have been like for him for a minute. He would have had to support and nurture a hundred people on top of whatever else he had to do with his, uh, with his life and, and his uh, uh, way of making a living. That would have been an enormous burden. And, and, you know, think about this for yourself. That would be hard uh, for, for me just, just to imagine the sacrifice necessary to be the primary provider for 100 other adults. Wow. On top of that, an economic sacrifice uh, was the real risk that he took on his own life. You know, if he were discovered having hidden these 100 prophets, he would have certainly been killed 
He was no coward. He was a godly man with living faith and expectant hope in the promises of his Lord. So what would have become of those hundred prophets had Obadiah not been in a position to help and support them? We don't really know for sure, but we do know that Jezebel was on an active seek-and-destroy uh, the, all the prophets of, of Israel mission. So we probably, we can say, they would have been killed. So here we got a guy who, you know, uh, risked a ton, sacrificed a ton, and nevertheless, we judge him to be morally circumspect. Uh, he's a compromiser who should have refused employment with Ahab. And th that really is that to say that we understand Obadiah as uh, somebody in between the polar opposites of Elijah the good and Ahab the evil. You know, for, for Obadiah to fit into our construction, and remember this is our construction, he must be at best only partly good. Power in our culture's understanding is to be used to signal virtue. Obadiah could have signaled his virtue to us by not associating himself with Ahab and keeping himself pure. That, I'm saying, is a moralistic reading of Obadiah. What if Obadiah kept himself pure by working for Ahab? What if we turn that question on its head? What if Obadiah kept himself pure by working for Ahab? Because really, what if the Lord is the hero of this story? What if the Lord uses the, the faithful but, but limited, oh, sorry, faithful but limited uh, abilities and powers of people like Obadiah, or like us, to be vectors of grace in this world? And if we stop reading this story with Elijah as the central hero and instead see the Lord as the primary character, then we can see Obadiah for the man that he was. He was a godly man who did the best that he could to be faithful to the Lord in a hard and difficult situation. He didn't do anything wrong by serving Ahab well. Instead, he did everything right by serving evil King Ahab very well. It is that that enabled him to rescue and support a hundred prophets in a cave. He used his power to do good. And that's also what enabled him to help Elijah. And that's also what let him serve the common good of, in Israel so long ago. And really, really, in their desperate and hurting world, every bit helped. And, and frankly, is our world today really any different? So what if the real important difference then between Obadiah and Elijah was not their faithfulness to the Lord, but their social power. Obadiah did not have the power of either King Ahab or the prophet Elijah. He could not turn Israelite society around on his own. He did not command armies. He did not cause droughts. His sphere of influence was comparatively modest, although, you know, to be honest, it would have been bigger than, than certainly than mine or any ordinary man's, but he was no superhero. He could not faithfully choose either to shun Ahab or to dwell in the wilderness like Elijah or to have the high places torn down and the idols destroyed like King Ahab could have. His power and therefore his choices were much more limited than that. So what did he choose? He chose to serve Ahab well. You cannot rise to the head of a king's household if you do not do your job well. So he must have worked as excellently as he could. And in so doing, he also faithfully served the Lord and bore witness to him. You know, he probably didn't make an open public show of his faith at work because that would have deeply antagonized Ahab and Jezebel. Instead, he would have let his conduct speak for itself. 
you might know somebody like this. I know a believer who's who has seven children to support. And over the time that I've known him, uh, about 10 years, he's lost at least half a dozen jobs because he insists on taking time out of his work to publicly evangelize to his supervisors and co-workers. While his zeal is admirable, his tactic is both foolish and faithless, just as the Lord worked through the actions without words of Obadiah at work to save those prophets, so also can the Lord work through our actions whenever we lack the appropriate opportunity to speak. If you have the opportunity to speak, you should do so. If you do not, you should not do so. Through his insistence that the Lord use, my friend here, uh, that the Lord use his public words at work, his dependent children have had to rely on others for their support. Instead of that example, Obadiah was an excellent worker who won the trust of royalty and the power that comes with that. Obadiah then used that power to serve the Lord and his fellow Israelites, you know, by rescuing and supporting a hundred prophets for years. The Lord used Obadiah, his faithful servant, and we should never be ashamed to work well where we are, and then to see how the Lord will use us. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we see the same pattern occur again. We have in this chapter, godly King Josiah, He's taken the throne from his very evil father, uh, King Manasseh. This guy was even worse than Ahab. King Manasseh actually sacrificed his own son. So nevertheless, thankfully, he still had godly people working for him. So that when King Josiah begins to rebuild the temple, those godly people, those godly workers who would have also worked for, you know, uh, godly King Josiah's evil father, King Manasseh, they are nevertheless so trustworthy that King Josiah says they don't even need to be audited when we disperse money to them. And what they do is they actually, these workers, they actually rediscover the lost Torah, the lost law of Israel. So going back to our, our beginning question, should, should everyone have left the employ or service of evil King Manasseh? Think about that. If every godly person who worked for King Manasseh had quit and left civil service, what would have happened to Judah's society? What would happen in our society today if everyone understood their occupations only in moralistic terms as an opportunity to signal their own virtue? What if those of us who strive to do well at whatever we do, through thick and thin, just decided to pack it in when we perceived that the morality of those we serve has been compromised? Probably in our society, we'd end up starving and having mass chaos. So thank the Lord that he provided people like Obadiah to stay at home, you know, with uh, ungrateful and disobedient children, to put out fires at every company and home, to protect and serve all of the people, to produce all the products and services that we rely on and need every day. So for those of us who are more like Obadiah than like Elijah, for those of us who are limited in power and influence, but not faithfulness, let me say thank you for your service. But I want to draw us back to this question, though. Why would I believe that Obadiah, given what I just said, was less good than Elijah? You know, one of the questions that this story about Obadiah raises for us is what does it say about me? That I tend to read into Obadiah's story a conclusion that he is, in fact, less good than Elijah. That's a very uncomfortable question for me because when I reread, his story, in the first part of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, when I reread that, 
rem- while I'm remembering that the Lord is the primary subject, primary character, not Elijah, then I can see clearly that Obadiah, like Elijah, is also a vessel for the Lord's grace, and that the primary difference between Obadiah and Elijah lies in their power difference. The Lord used Elijah to speak to King Ahab with drought-inducing power. The Lord used Obadiah to speak to King Ahab with service and duty. It makes Elijah seem like a superhero who's wielding the Lord's power to stop the rain and, and raise the dead. In contrast, Obadiah seems, well, normal, even though he rescued and supported a hundred prophets. So when I read into Obadiah's story, a conclusion that Obadiah is not only less powerful, but less good than Elijah, I'm actually asserting that power itself is a virtue, a moral good. If Obadiah is less good than Elijah, and if the primary difference between them is a difference in power, then Obadiah's possession of less power than Elijah must be why I see him as less good or less moral than Elijah. Unfortunately, that means that I must confess that I believe, in spite of knowing that this is wrong, that power itself is a virtue. Let me restate that. I believe that power is a moral good, and as a moral good, something that I would aspire to possess. In other words, I have to confess my own will to power. I want to further point out how pervasive this sinful belief in power is for me. It has the power to change my perception and my understanding of Scripture. It shaped the way I read the story of Obadiah in 1 Kings chapter 18. It warps the message about a holy and loving God who reaches through different sorts of people who are each playing very different roles and uses them harmoniously together for his own purposes. But this sinful belief in power twists that message into a heart-level, not head-level, a heart-level message that Elijah is better than Obadiah because he has more power. As, As I confess this sin, I also have to ask how this sin grew so powerful within me, so powerful that it's able to warp my head-level understanding. I did not think my way to this sinful belief. I know that it's wrong. I believe that power is a virtue in spite of knowing that this is a bad belief. So how did it get there? And how did it become so powerful? Well, as ever, I cultivated this sinful belief by uncritically immersing myself over and over and over again in the stories, in the movies, in the songs, in the practices of our culture that reinforce this belief. And I think of all the subtle ways that we train ourselves to see power itself, not as a conduit for grace or evil, but as a moral good in its own right as a virtue itself. So, what should a Christian do? Understanding power itself to be a virtue is a shared cultural belief for us in America. If we look for it, we can see it across our culture. We can see it as the underlying assumption in the way we usually practice politics, in the superhero movies we like to watch, in the songs we like to sing. We are, as Christians, we are not somehow immune to this. However, when we regularly read the Bible, 
when we make a habit of this and allow the Spirit to speak to us through its stories on their own terms, we can begin to see that these sinful beliefs and attitudes of, of ours that, that we have, we can begin to see those for what they are. We begin an immersive process to see our own sin through the contrast provided by this self-revelation of the Lord, our holy and sovereign God. So in rooting ourselves in Scripture, habitually, day in and day out, and with the help of the Spirit, we are able to not only start seeing our sin, but to begin rooting out our sinful beliefs. Thanks.